I'm Yash Pavlik-Slink, and this is Degrees, real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. Listeners, one of the crucial challenges we're facing with climate change is communicating about it. That's why the role of artists, journalists, and communicators are essential in helping us really understand what's happening with our planet. Today, we'll feature a guest who became obsessed with a new word, a phenomenon of loneliness and longing born from climate change that few people understand. National Geographic photographer Pete Muller spent two years traveling the world to learn about the emotional distress caused by climate change and to document it. And I do mean traveling the world from Louisiana to California. Pete went to the far reaches of Australia and Russia and Peru. Pete used to spend his time documenting phenomena that we can readily see, wars, epidemics and violence, and now he was trying to make the invisible crisis of climate change visible through not just landscapes, but intimate photos of people. The results of his two-year odyssey are published in a beautiful National Geographic photo essay called As Climate Change Alters Beloved Landscapes, We Feel the Loss. We're sharing several of these photos on our website, www.degreespodcast.org, Click on Pete's episode. We encourage you to look at them while you listen to my conversation with Pete. Whether you're a storyteller or a scientist or an engineer or a business executive, this conversation will make you think about your work in a very different way. It certainly did for me. But before I share our conversation with you, I have a few things to share myself. This is the 12th episode of our first season and our season finale. We will be back with our second season, but as we take a little time off to develop it, we'd love to hear from you. Please direct message me on Twitter at YeshSays with your guest and your topic suggestions, or write to us through our website, degreespodcast.org. And I have even more exciting news. Pete Muller was so fascinating to talk with that we couldn't possibly share the whole conversation with you here. So we're going live on Instagram for a deeper dive with Pete. Please tune in on Thursday, February 11th at 1230 Eastern by following the Environmental Defense Fund account. You'll hear more gems about climate change and careers and storytelling with Pete Muller. And now, listeners, Pete Muller. Pete, welcome to Degrees. Yes, thanks so much for having me. I want to drill into those moments of conflict that you have been documenting for your entire career, or most of it anyway. I've seen your photos capturing scenes from war in the South Sudan and Ebola in Sierra Leone. I watched a clip this morning. It brought me to tears, and they're they're absolutely stunning. But a few years ago, you became fascinated by the emotional ways that climate change is affecting people right now in their own backyards. Can you take me back to the idea for this project that really captured you and and take me to the moment where it wouldn't let you go? Yeah, I mean I think I think at a at a somewhat more general level, you know, I've 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 very much wanted to understand the issues of our time. That's something that I feel like has really been a part of the way that I've pursued my work and what's motivated me. I've I've always really wanted to to, to be at the ground floor level with people um, and, and try to understand all of the complexities and the nuances and, and all of the sort of 
somewhat enigmatic things that make up how each of us are. And, you know, I, I had been involved in these, these larger projects about, about conflict and unrest and repression, but increasingly I could sense that issues related to the environment were profoundly important and infecting people all over the world. And so I wanted to try to bring the kind of methodological approach that I'd often brought to my conflict um, photography in, in, in different areas to this very timely and expansive subject. So I set about trying to find a way, you know, National Geographic and so many places have done such incredible work as sort of being standard bearers for disseminating all of this information about the physical changes that we're seeing in the world, the scientific realities of what's happening around us. And those, of course, are the bedrocks of our understanding about the changes that we're seeing. But in some ways, to me, they can feel a little bit distant. They can feel a little sterile and far away and hard to understand uh, or hard to relate to. And so I really wanted to try to find ways in that made these conversations more, more humanistic and more relatable. So Pete started trying to figure out a way to do just that, to capture the immediacy and the emotions around climate change. One day, reading and researching, he ran across an article that made him sit upright. It was about a guy named Glenn Albrecht, a philosopher from Australia who lived in an area that had been beautiful, but was now virtually ruined by strip mines. He had coined the term for the feelings of loss and longing that were plaguing him and his family and for the melancholy that was troubling people all over, people who were feeling the effects of climate change right now. Albrecht called it solastalgia, and Pete was fascinated. He ultimately decided to make solastalgia the focus of his project, and as I mentioned, the project would take him all around the world. Of course, one of those stops was to meet the Albrechts. As I'm looking at these photos, and listeners can look at them along with us, uh, this couple has lived in this community their entire lives. They and their neighbors have raised families in this community. And uh, despite their best efforts, the land around their home was subject to uh, super pit clusters in Australia's Hunter Valley. And as I'm looking at this picture, I'm seeing a two-lane highway with green to the right and to the left is just this unending mass of gray and white and black soot and uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. When you say the word strip mine, this part of the planet looks like it has been stripped of all that is alive. And the couple that you spoke with drive 20 miles out of their way every day to avoid seeing their home having been destroyed. And there's a, a really striking photo of uh, the woman's hand, she probably tries to, you know, like anyone else, clean their home in regularity. And it seems like every day she could wipe any surface of her uh, backyard and her hand would be completely covered in this soot that is in the air that they breathe. Can you take me back to that experience, to that uh, connection with those folks and talk about first what it's feels like to stand at the edge of a strip mine in Australia? And second, how meeting these people changed you? Well, so this this place is, is called the Upper Hunter Valley. And it's this really bucolic, beautiful place about three and a half hours north of Sydney in New South Wales. And 
this was such an important place to visit because this was really the birthplace of this concept of solastalgia that was coined by this Australian environmental philosopher, Glenn Albrecht. And um, Glenn, who was working as a professor of sustainability at the time, was working with two, two other colleagues that were doing these sort of uh, impact, human impact surveys. And some of that had to do with physical health and some had to do with mental health. And, and Glenn, in particular, became keenly interested in the emotional impacts that these major, major minds were having on the communities that lived around them. Because that had always been a very rural community. There were lots of dairy farmers and alfalfa fields and citrus groves and, and various things over, over time. And then with the introduction of this discovery of a lot of high-quality coal underneath the valley floor, these companies came in and started to open these absolutely gargantuan holes. And as, as you say, Yesh, as you're describing, it's like it's, it's almost hard to describe until you see the photo and you think, geez, I mean, these things are absolutely massive. They're visible from space. And they started to open all throughout the place. So what started to happen in the Upper Hunter was that there was all of this transformation, not only the sort of physical transformation of the digging of these holes that are kilometers long and kilometers wide and a thousand meters deep, which means, of course, the hole is there. But it also means that all of the stripping that you're describing, that what's called overburden, which is all of the the earth that that has covered the, the coal seams, has to be removed and piled to the side of this hole. So there's this massive topographic transformation in the place. Coupled with that is all of this noise and dust and light pollution and social transformation of some people leaving and all of these new people who are coming in to work in the extractive industries. So everything changed in this place. And and Glenn Albrecht started to notice this feeling of distress among the people that they had a difficult time articulating. You know, they would have to be very verbose in describing all of the various features of how they felt, you know. And that's ultimately, I I came to learn over time of studying the relationship between phenomena and language and if and when, uh, you know, a phenomena becomes prevalent enough in a society to give rise to a word to describe it. That is always a response to a prevalent enough experience in which people are having to go through the laborious process of describing the features of how they feel which is hard. I mean, even in a simple context, if you had to describe a pizza every time you were going to reference the fact that that's what you were going to have for dinner, you know, it's a, it's an onerous <laughs> thing to do to describe the bread and the, the rising and the cheese and the toppings and all this stuff. You just need a shorthand concept how the problem makes us feel. Without words to describe that, we're really left at some kind of, of a loss because you can't quite see it for what it is. And solastalgia, that's the word and the concept you're just you're describing. You know, I mean, Glenn created it to describe this sense of homesickness that people have while they're still at home as they're undergoing forms of physical environmental transformation that strips the essence of the place such that it no longer feels comfortable. It's no longer giving them that sense of solace. And I think that that's an interesting and likely prevalent experience in a lot of people's lives. So Glenn and his wife drive 20 miles out of their way to avoid seeing this horrendous degradation of the land near their home. And it's probably pretty lonely for them, too. Many of their relatives have simply moved away. It sounds really upsetting, to be honest, and also like they were probably feeling solastalgia personally, not just describing it in an academic way. How did meeting Glenn and his wife change you as a photographer, as a journalist, or as a human being? Well, 
meeting them and and examining their experiences with this notion of 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 language in mind is there a word that we should have for this experience that people are are undergoing was a profoundly intellectually transformative idea to me. I mean, I had to really, really work on this project to try to get my footing. Frankly, I'm not sure I can really imagine how hard that must have been, not just intellectually, but emotionally as well. In fact, I'm really curious about your trip to Paradise, a town that was almost completely wiped out by the campfire in 2018. At the time, it was the deadliest fire in California's history as the campfire killed 85 people and destroyed close to 20,000 homes and businesses. You visited a family who decided to stay in paradise after all that. Listener, by the way, these are just beautiful, evocative photos, and I encourage you to log on to our website and take a look at them. If you missed it at the top of the show, that's degreespodcast.org. Now, Pete, I'm wondering if you can describe some of those photos in detail for our audience. And I'd like you to start where one couple is sitting in a living room. And it looks like they're playing music. Um, yeah, so this is one of my most favorite photographs from that, that whole project. This is a picture of Don Criswell and his wife, Debbie DeMonte, in their home on the outskirts. So the, these are what are known as the unincorporated areas of paradise outside of the technical boundaries of the town. And when the fires happened, you know, they had never really seen such intense fire, certainly at the center of paradise, the, the way that it struck in, in the 2018 campfire. The firefighting efforts were so quickly overwhelmed by the extent of this fire that certainly people in the unincorporated areas where Don and Debbie live were really on their own. The fire department just said, look, you're going to have to do your best to fight the fires yourselves. And Don in particular, um, is, he's an extraordinary person. He's been through so many exceptional things in his life. He was an infantry soldier during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam in 1968. He'd been a, a member of SWAT teams in, in various parts of California. He was a private investigator working on the tribunals in former Yugoslavia. He's an incredible person, and he's a highly prepared person. I think his life has really made him prepared for a lot of adversities and things. And so he'd actually burned out uh, in the Humboldt fire in 2008. And he had really done his best to prepare his land for any fires that might happen after he rebuilt. So he and Debbie were relatively well prepared uh, for, for the campfire. And they fought it all day. They fought spot fires around their property. And they managed to save this ranch where they live. So they were one of very few families whose homes survived the, the campfire. And what was amazing about them, I mean, they have this incredibly positive, resilient outlook about the world and about rebuilding and about the, the being able to reassemble the sense of community that once existed in paradise, which was particularly impressive, I think, for Don Criswell, who's many people had moved from other places to paradise. Don was actually a sixth generation Paradisian, which is quite unusual. And he'd seen the place through lots of changes. And, um, you know, there's this sort of unusual kind of contradictory psychology that seemed to be in place for many whose homes survived in paradise where they were in one way really grateful that they'd made it and that their things had made it and that they weren't in the same place of being completely displaced as so many others. But also they were alone in this place that had through their lives been populated with all of these other people. So Don Criswell played the piano all over paradise. He moonlighted in all these different places, churches and bars and restaurants. And 
He, he himself would say that he's not a particularly sophisticated piano player, but he loves to create atmosphere in places, to turn dinner into a date, as he said. And, and I thought that was such beautiful kind of poetic language for the subtleties of sense of place that you have somebody like Don Criswell that's going to be reliably sitting at the piano, strumming the keys a couple of nights a week to try to turn dinner in, into a date for the people that come in there. But he and Debbie were really contending with what it meant to remain in this place that for all intents and purposes, when they were at home, in their house, kind of appeared normal. But to realize that that place, all of the orientation, the social orientation, the geographic orientation of it, had been completely upended by the evisceration of the rest of the town and the community by the fire. Have you followed up with them? We had worse wildfires this year. Were they affected again? Are, are they still in paradise? Or have they and others moved on? They, they weren't affected by it. In fact, there was fires that burned relatively close to paradise this year. But fortunately, the town wasn't really hit again uh, the way so many other places were. And I, I do keep in touch with Don and Debbie. Uh, it's been a couple months now, but we talked after the COVID pandemic started. And another interesting thing that arose as a sort of a parallel to COVID with Don and Debbie and, and other people from Paradise was that in some ways there was almost a feeling of preparedness, that they had been through something akin to this not so long ago, to have had everything disrupted, to, to really feel that sense of the absence of all of these social networks and people that you keep close to you and, and this normalcy that so many of us take for granted in our lives, that had been disrupted for them already. So there was a disappointment that things were just beginning to come back a little bit and then COVID comes around and causes a shutdown again. But for, for many people in paradise, it wasn't that much of a disruption, actually, which I thought was quite interesting. It, it definitely set them up for, for success in, in a way that caught the rest of the world very much off guard. Well, it's obvious that every time you get to know families, whether they're in Paradise, California, or they're in Russia, or they're in Sierra Leone, you become very connected. You're really asking people to share the depths of their experience with you. So I, I can imagine that you feel very close to them, and that relationship continues far beyond the story in some cases. How did documenting the Chris Wells change you? I took a tremendous amount of inspiration from both of them, uh, particularly from Don. I think there's really an important and I think kind of fascinating conversation around the role of adversity in resilience. You know, we talk a lot about resilience these days. It's really a buzzword in so many different sectors. But what's fascinating to me is that it feels like adversity is, in a lot of ways, preparation for, for resilience. And this was something interesting that was, was mentioned by this uh, really fascinating woman who's the school psychologist at Paradise High School, who was one of the main characters in this film um, that National Geographic distributed this year called Rebuilding Paradise, which is a Ron Howard film that chronicled the tale of rebuilding the town through some really compelling, fascinating characters out there. It's a documentary film. So this woman, uh, Carly Ingersoll, who was the, uh, the school psychologist at Paradise High School, was explaining to me that a number of the students at, at Paradise High School rank relatively high in what's called the sort of ACE uh, metric, which is uh, adverse childhood experiences. And her perception was that as she was watching students go through the psychological hurdles after the fire, that she felt in some way that the prevalence of, of adverse childhood experiences 
almost set students up to be more resilient, that these were students who'd been through challenges before. They were not necessarily strangers to adversity. And so when the fire happened, they were in some ways relatively well-prepared psychologically to try to get through that, which I thought was, was interesting. And certainly Don Criswell is a person who really impressed upon me how the, the, the adverse experiences, the challenges that he'd been through in his life really affected and sort of moderated the, the ways in which he perceived what the burning of paradise was really going to mean. Don certainly felt a profound sense of loss to see his community transformed in that way and to see his relationships upended and in the sense of dislocation. But he had been through enough in his life that in his words, you know, he really felt that he was relatively well positioned to try to see the other side of, of this very tumultuous event. Well, and and then in in history to follow that we didn't expect the pandemic, and no doubt the 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 trend continues. So with that, um, I can't imagine when you're crossing the globe, and again when you're trying to access intimate families and communities that are facing crisis, it probably doesn't always go swimmingly. Was there anything you tried to do on this specific project, not Paradise exclusively, but your entire project that failed? And I'm wondering if there are any lessons learned from that that you can share with our audience. I'm always convinced that I'm going to fail. You know, like <laughs> it's it's almost a matter. It's just like a pro forma that every time I set out to do something, I am terrified that it's not going to work out, that I've made a huge mistake and I feel I'm always so filled with doubt, always. Um, I mean, I think we've all been there at some point in time. And in addition to having that doubt on a big project, this work is hard, When you're talking about gathering stories from people and documenting movements and moments in human history that are painful and big and emotional, how do you emotionally manage all that you need to, to take in what can be really scary and really painful and translate that to an audience? You've done it in so many different ways, and I can only put myself in your shoes and wonder, Pete, Does that take a toll? It must take a toll, right? I I never really know how to answer that question. I I think it certainly does take a toll. I mean, I got involved in all of this because my temperament feels very connected to people. I, I, I really care about people. I want to understand them. And so I feel a lot of things with them. And there's no way really for me... To be with people in times of incredible emotional distress and not feel that with them. And and frankly, I think if you're not feeling that with them, I think that there's something kind of wrong. And I think that your pictures, I don't know, they begin to reflect that, that you're not feeling that with them. And it's a very, very delicate balance because... Someone in my position has also made a choice that I'm, in many instances, I'm there in a professional capacity. So I'm really riding this line between all of these fundamental facets of my personality and my sense of connection and and empathy with people and also needing to try to keep some level of distance so that I can try as best I can to make a record of what's transpiring. I mean... 
if you can't hold yourself together enough that you're able to record what you're seeing, then your presence there is really in some ways an intrusion. I mean, I've been in many situations where it should be a place that's really only for the most intimate of connections, you know, funerals and and moments of real tragedy and terrible things. And the unspoken or in some cases spoken contract that you have is that I have been allowed to be here. It's an extraordinary honor and it is somewhat an imposition for me to be here. And you have my pledge to do my utmost in making a respectful, thoughtful, empathetic, fair rendering of what's happening here with the idea that when we share this, hopefully this is part of a process of trying to build a sense of awareness that leads to all of these other mechanisms, hopefully kicking into play and ultimately seeing some kind of relief from the circumstances that you're photographing. If you don't feel that, if you don't feel some modicum of of hope that there's a, a purpose for your being here, then you can't last very long emotionally and you arguably probably shouldn't be there to begin with. So one thing that will be particularly of interest to our listeners who are thinking about using their creative and artistic talents to bring light to climate change and making this sometimes invisible phenomena, this invisible experience visible, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on that process, on you yourself identifying what is invisible and deciding as an artist how it's possible to make it visible. I'm glad that that's what you've asked because I've been thinking a lot about that. I'd recently heard just like a sort of snippet on NPR, but it was this series that they were doing about like, hey, here's a cool instance of how people got together to solve a problem. And what they were talking about was the hole in the ozone layer. And they were describing how there was a sort of public awareness campaign and they were trying to draw attention to the fact that, of course, this is like of all things invisible, the hole in the ozone layer is this big invisible thing that nobody can really perceive. And of course, it's having impacts that we can perceive. But how do you get people to care about something that they can't really see? And so there was this effort underway to create a visual representation of this hole. And it was done effectively enough that people started to really understand and the, and the message started landing with them far better. And they were able to galvanize enough public support, which translated into political support, which translated into funding, to begin to make tangible strides towards resolving this, this problem. That resonates so much with me. That That's my childhood right there, um, watching that become important. And even as children, being able to understand at a very elementary level what the ozone layer was and, and why we were affecting it, how we were affecting it, and how we could change it. I, I'm just chiming in to say I really agree with you because I can remember even as a child that idea being so poignant. Well, we can't fix what we can't see. And, and I think that there's so many different ways to begin to see something. I certainly am trying to utilize photography and other things to try to help that process of, of seeing. What's enticed me a little bit, and, and somewhat to my frustration because it's so much harder to do it this way, is that as a conventional photojournalist, you deploy out to where the action is for the most part, you know, and you're there to take snaps of, of this news highlight of the day or whatever. And I'm not saying that it's all high octane and, you know, very extreme, but for the most part, that's where we gravitate to because that's where the camera thrives in that, in that medium. And I've, like I said, kind of frustratingly developed this fixation on trying to utilize 
the camera as part of the process of photographing things that are really hard to photograph. And this means, by the way, uh, knowing what is appropriate in what settings and what isn't. You know, like photojournalism, you never intervene. Mm. That's the first and foremost rule of photojournalism. You don't step in. You don't ask people to repeat things. You don't stage things. Unless you very clearly are saying, listen, I want to take a portrait of this person, in which case you would identify it as this is a portrait of Yesh in her closet recording her podcast or whatever it is. But for the most part, it's supposed to be observational as possible. And I think that the photojournalistic technique is profoundly impressive and it's so important for the historical record and it has a really prominent and important place. And I I love it now. I love to consume it and I look at it. But it's not always, in my opinion, the right technique for using visuals to chronicle a subject, you know? And so like some of these images in the Solastalgia Project, these are directed portraits in some cases. You know, the, the image that you had mentioned about the, the couple in Playing their, the piano. I saw Don and Debbie playing like that the night before and I left them a note. I was bringing up dog food over the back steps <laughs> that had been delivered by Amazon. And I came up the back steps and I and I saw them through the window and they were playing. I thought, oh my God. And I felt so, you know, I was so voyeuristic. I was like right. standing outside and watching this thing. But it was dark outside and they, and we really have a wonderful relationship. I didn't feel that I was breaching any trust really. It was so it was so beautiful and I, I stood and I watched a little bit and then I left them a note in the morning. I said I saw you guys sitting at the piano last night when I brought the dog food up onto the porch and it was the most beautiful thing I'd seen in so long and I'd love that to be the photo of you guys. And so we agreed. But that picture is not the moment. That's not actually the moment that I first saw them. But that's the moment that we made of that moment that was real. You know, I mean... I think that there are instances where something can be somewhat less real and be an indication of truth. And there are also things where something can be real and not necessarily be true. You know, because it's a snippet. It's an unfair representation. You chose this moment where this woman's face was very contorted. And in that moment, she looks angry at the person that she's talking to. But in fact, she's not. She had an itch. You know, but you've... Exactly. These are like the ongoing forever debates about the photographic medium is that it is this distillation that happens so quickly. And, and is it fair? And is it true? And, and so to me, as I've begun to become more interested in these explanatory projects that are about things that are harder to visualize, I've become increasingly open to using different photographic methods to try to get at those things. Because I fear that if you don't, if you are too committed necessarily to the purity of photojournalism, say, we risk missing really important things about the human experience that just are not as legible to this photojournalistic technique. Pete, what makes great photography? I mean, great photography, great photography to me makes me think there's a kind of effervescent, intangible quality to great photography. I sometimes say that for me, photography is really nothing more than a gateway to conversation. I love the artistry of photography. I mean, I, I come from, from a world of painters and photographers and people who really have devoted their lives to pursuing and refining their artistic vision. And, and I have great appreciation for that side of it. But if it doesn't spark a conversation, I mean, that's what I want. I want to take pictures that when you look at them, you, you think, 
hang on a second. Either either this this really resonates with me in a way that I want to discuss, or it's rubbing me in some kind of way that's making me think about something in a way that perhaps I hadn't. If we're having an impassioned conversation as a result of the photography, then I think it's been successful. Well, and on that note, you have a dream job for many of our listeners, whether or not they're in communications. And let's be honest, only a handful, if if only a handful maybe will become National Geographic photographers themselves. So what advice would you give to our listeners who want to use their artistic and communications talents to advance conversations about climate change the way that you're doing with your work? I think that it's really partially related to the way that photography has been so transformed by technologies. You know, we are all now proficient photographers. We have phones on our cameras that enable us to take pictures that are overwhelmingly correctly exposed and in focus. And given that we all now have that capability to record the world around us, and the world is just swimming in in, in pictures of everything, we really have to think very carefully about what we have to say what can our photographs contribute and how can we utilize this form of communication to express ideas and to challenge things and to invite people, encourage their curiosity and engage their sense of interest in the world. And so in some ways, I feel like photography is, it's almost besides the point, you know, if you like to take pictures, take pictures and look at lots of other people's pictures and look at lots of art, you know, familiarize yourself with the principles of the way that the art world is organized and, and utilize those things and try to figure out how to make them your own. But spend the majority of your time reading and thinking and consuming other forms of information that can inform the frameworks in which you start to employ photography. One of the storied directors of photography at National Geographic used to say, we're up to our eyeballs in good photographers and we're up to our ankles in good ideas. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's so incredible. I mean, what an, what an observation. Sure, he meant it in the context of photography, but boy, that deals with everything out there. Whatever your pursuit is, your ideas are your currency. And so if you're not very proactively cultivating and refining and looking for, for sustenance for your ideas, then the outputs that you make, be it photography or films or whatever it is, may be lacking. That's great, thoughtful advice for people who are doing the work. I'd love for you to add to that. What advice can you give our listeners who are looking for jobs, who are budding writers and marketers and artists and photographers who want to use their talents to help mitigate the climate crisis? What is always most interesting to me about great storytellers is that they are by and large capable of finding sort of fabulous stories wherever they are. It's, it's more of an outlook than a matter of practicality. You know, how are you approaching the world? Are you, are you keenly, voraciously interested in other people and what they're experiencing? And how do you demonstrate that? I mean, in order to learn things about people, which in turn help you learn things about yourself, you have got to be engaged. And people will not give you the time of day if they sense that your attention is trite or superficial or extractive. And so in some ways, I don't know if that's practical advice necessarily, but really trying to take a proactive approach to the engagement and interest that you have in places that are familiar to you. 
landscapes and environments and social situations that are really familiar to you and engaging them in in a kind of active way, actively thinking, actively talking with people, actively listening to people. And I think, too, as a matter of advice for people who are trying to get into this, really try to interrogate your own ideas as well. You know, I, I fear that we're, we're veering a little bit into territory where we want a kind of a soothing experience from what we're consuming and what we're making and the kinds of stories that we're telling. And having our ideas contradicted is very uncomfortable. But that's so essential, you know. We cannot devise critical ways of approaching complex problems if we are not fully versed in all of the parameters of what the argument around these issues are. And as, as devoted as we have to be to what we understand to be the principles of science and, you know, a, a strong sense of principle, we also really have to remain open to things that come in that are challenging, that can help to at least give us a greater understanding of things as uncomfortable or sometimes as unpleasant as that may be. I think we have to be open. <laughs> um, now that you've done this project, how important is storytelling in fighting climate change? I think it's I think it's profoundly important. I think there is something very primordial about storytelling. Our abilities to communicate as a social species have been so vital in every facet of our evolutionary process, the way that we engage with each other, the way that we build broader societies, the way that we've put together all of the social enterprise that's really defined Homo sapiens as a group of people. And all of that, in one way or another, is connected to story. How are we connecting various points that are otherwise kind of disparate things out there in the world? It's like a storytelling editing where we say, well, this point is important and that point is important and this not so much. And and that process is so influential and it can be so cathartic or it can be so devastating, you know. And I think that the stories that we tell about the issues of our time, climate change being no different, can have a profound impact on how we adapt to these things. Or at least how we do it constructively, you know. I mean, because fact of the matter is time will march on and people will live as long as we can live, you know. But it's how do we want to live? What do we see as a judicious path forward that's reasonable, that's attainable, that we can bring people on board for, that can hopefully make the type of quality of experience that we have as we persist as a species for as long as we can? How can we attain those things? And I think storytelling is a big part of that. I mean, how do we imbue anybody with values, generation after generation with values? As we tell them about it. And we tell stories, biblical stories and social stories and all these things that that shape the way that we understand the world. So stories are, they are quintessentially human. Well, this has been fascinating, Pete. I'm so grateful. And uh, this has been such, such a joy. Great. And thank you for your interest. And that's our show for today. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Degrees. And that's a wrap on season one of Degrees. If you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment right now and give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And share the show with friends and family and ask them to subscribe. Season two is on the way and it's going to be bigger and better. As we work on it, please help us out. Direct message me on Twitter at Yesh Says or reach out to me on LinkedIn at Yesh Pavlik's Link. Tell us what you've loved 
maybe what you didn't, and what you'd like to hear more of. We love hearing from you. And on behalf of the entire Degrees team, it has been a true joy to serve you. Also, if you liked this episode, please join me and Pete Muller as we go live on Instagram on Thursday, February 11th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. You can find us on the Environmental Defense Fund account. Finally, if you're looking for a job, please visit our website, degreespodcast.org, where we've posted our favorite sustainability job boards. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Our producers are Rick Fallou and Amy Morse. Our executive producer is Christina Mestre. Our production company is Podcast Allies with Elaine Appleton-Grant and Lindsay O'Connor. Engineering by Matthew Simonson and theme music by Lake Street Dive. I'm your host, Yesh Pavlik-Slank. Stay fired up, y'all. Change.